So I had to laugh a little bit when you said that because um, you said she just followed God's call. And I'm not going to share about this today, but the reality is that I virtually stamped my foot for years and said, no, God, not going to do it. And I bargained, and I did lots of other things. Maybe I'll get a chance later to share a little bit about that this week. But today I want to just talk a little bit about, first, about who I am and where I am and what I do. I am Mary Anderson. Um, I work at the Kuchala Hospital for Women and Children. I am a nurse um, in Mali, West Africa. Mali is, if you can, if I can draw Africa for you, the big hump that comes down and then to the point, Africa, I'm in right in the middle of that hump of Africa. Um, in a landlocked country of Mali, it is about 60% desert, and I live down in the south, which is semi-desert, um, in a area where the Alliance has been for many, many years. The church is fairly well established in the town that we're in, but as the, at the hospital, we see people from five different countries, and the majority of our patients are from villages who have never heard the gospel in the name of Jesus. So it gives us a unique opportunity to sit in a fairly reached area, but also reach the unreached on a daily basis. So today I want to just share a little bit about a couple patients that we've seen over the last um, year to two years. It is just encouraging to work in a place like Mali. Mali is one of the poorest countries in the world. People earn less than $2 a day. Um, a couple years ago, it was less than a dollar a day, so I'm pretty sure that it's just barely over a dollar a day, just watching the people that I live around. It's, it's very poor. For women and children, it's even harder. Women are, um, because they live in a Muslim country, it's 90% Muslim, they're very looked down on. They're not really... Um, they don't really take a, a major role in the family. They are one of often four um, wives for men. Children are also facing pretty rough obstacles. Some of the statistics for Mali, when I went eight years ago, seven years ago, um, Mali was, well, women, I should say, one out of every 15 women died in childbirth. Um, one out of every four children didn't see their fifth birthday. Today, thankfully, the statistics have changed a little bit. And if I look at them and I think of how massive the country of Mali is and how much the statistics have changed, it's amazing to me. Today, we're looking at one out of every five children doesn't see their fifth birthday. And one out of every 19 women dies in childbirth. Mali is considered to be the fourth most difficult country in the world to be a mom. Um... The hospital itself was started because of, um, yeah, a story that I'm going to quickly tell you. I'm not going to get into detail, but the president of our seminary that is in our local town, or in in our town, um, his wife was pregnant with her ninth child. And she went into labor, and one of our nurses was present. We've we've always done some sort of of medical care with very small clinics, And she went into labor and stayed in labor for a long time. And this nurse just was looking and saying, what in the world is going on? And so she finally realized the baby's head was too large. There was no way 
that this lady was going to be able to deliver. So they took her to the local hospital and said, we think she needs a C-section. And they said, oh, no, no, we can, we can deliver this baby. And they began to push on her abdomen. And the nurse said, no, you can't do that. That's too dangerous. You've got to stop. And they said, leave the room. And they forced her to leave the room. And within minutes, the, the staff was running around and they really believed that what had happened is that they had really pushed on her abdomen and they ruptured her uterus and she bled to death in the nurse's arms. Um, they were able to save the baby, but in that same month, four other women in the Kuchala church died in childbirth. And the staff there said, we've got to do something. And so a dream was born that we would begin to build a hyper clinic. Uh, just, it would be one building but a clinic that was large enough that if somebody really needed to come in and have a C-section, that we would be able to provide that in a safe way. And today, the hospital is six buildings, and we see over 100 outpatient women a day, um, also children. We have just started seeing men, not for regular problems, but to come in for surgery. There's a 10-ward unit for men to be seen. And so that is where we stand today. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary this year as a hospital, and it's been really exciting. But I want to talk about a little bit about, because women are so, you know, marginalized is the word I want to use. And I asked my mom, do you know what that word means? And she said, "Mm, I don't think so. Can you explain it? So I thought I would just explain it because this will help put it in context. It says, Luke, Luke 3, 2 to 6, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So, I want to talk a little bit about people who are overlooked. And the the Bible, the (laughs) vocabulary.com, sorry, is not the Bible, um, says that when you push people to the edge of society by not allowing them a place within it, you marginalize them. So a society that labels people, uh, certain people, as outside the norm, weird, scary, hateful, or useless, marginalizes those people, edging them out. Native or aboriginal groups often end up in this position, and so do people who are poor, disabled, elderly, or in other ways are are seen as not quite fitting in. Um, that's where women and children are in Mali, and that's why we exist as a hospital. But the good news is God is the great way maker. It's he who makes a way for people to see his salvation. And I want to tell you a couple stories today of some people that we've seen um, over the past two years at the hospital that God made a way for in really incredible ways. Um, the first story is Tenen. Um, you can go to the next slide. This is not Tenen. I am so sorry. All of us loved Tenen, and we, I went around asking, did anybody get a picture of Tenen? And nobody took a picture of Tenen. But this reminds me of her. 
um, in many ways. She is a little bit older lady, and she's blind. Now, Tenen came to our hospital um, and, and was treated there, but one of the things that you need to know is, as a blind woman, Tenen would be living in a, in a compound, 10-foot walls around her. She would be alone in her home. Maybe her, her family would be her, around her, for sure, occasionally a visitor, but the infra- infrastructure in Mali is so bad that she would live there for years. She would not be able to go to the market. She would not be able to go out and do anything. Tenen would be pretty much a prisoner behind those walls. But God, in his great way, allowed her to come to the hospital. Now, when Tenen came to the hospital, she was extremely sick. She went immediately to the OR and had to have a surgery to remove infected tissue in her leg. She ended up with a very large wound because of it. And coming out of the OR, she went straight to the um, intensive care unit. Um, They began treating her, trying to get things under control. She was so, so sick that her organs had begun to shut down a little bit. The infection had gone into her bloodstream, causing what we call sepsis. And um, the infection had begun to to cause all the blood to go to her, her internal organs in a way that would save her, but caused her feet to begin to die. And so now we were dealing not only with a massive wound, but also feet that were becoming gangrenous and and nasty. And so they started treating her, and during that first week they realized, oh, she has tuberculosis. So they began tuberculosis treatment, and um, feeling that that was probably the reason. But after a week, there was absolutely no difference in her condition. She had gained a tiny bit of strength with fluids and other things, But as they had done wound care every day, nothing. Um, I have been asked and have for the last several years supervised the wound care clinic at the hospital. I have 11 guys on my team who do an excellent job. They work between wound care and the operating room, so they have a really good idea of what they're doing. Um, And so the doctor said, hey, Mary, do you mind coming in? and just looking at this patient because we're not getting anywhere with her. And then the wound care guys came to me and said, we need help. This is not working. And so I said, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll come down and look at her. So I went down, and I, I checked on her, and I said, okay, I will start coming every day and helping you guys do wound care to try to see if we can get this lady past this critical, critical position that she's in. So we went down every day. Some days I did it alone. Some days one of the guys was with me, depending on their jobs. And every day I would go down there, and as I approached Tenen, I would say, Hey, Tenen, how are you doing today? And she'd say, Who is it? And I'd say, It's Mary. How are you doing? And she'd say, I'm doing great. And of course she's not. (laughs) But that's culturally the response. And... um, Every day I saw just a tiny bit more energy, but not what I was hoping to see. But she would just get this smile on her face that went from ear to ear. And she would look up with her sightless eyes, and she would smile as if she was looking right at me, and she would talk, and she would just blossom. And I was realizing that it was the love of Christ in her life and shown to her by all the staff at the hospital that was just speaking into her. And... um, Every day I would go, and every day I would get more discouraged. 
because I saw no improvement at all. And um, I went to my team as we had prayer meeting, and I said, I need, I need an answer from God because we're doing this wound care. There should be improvement. She's on treatment. Nothing, nothing, nothing is working. Would you pray that God would give me wisdom? We had a local visiting, or we had a visiting team there, and I said, I need you guys to pray. Pray that God will give me answers. And I wrote home to my prayer team, and I said, would you pray for me? Pray for Tenen. And God gave me an answer. And I said, nope, God, never done that one before. Not going to do it. And he said, didn't you ask? And I said, okay. So I went, and I did wound care that day, and I tried this whole new thing that we had been using, but never in this kind of circumstance. And I said, okay, God, I'm going to trust you that this is the answer that you're giving me. And the next day, I went, and I opened up the, the dressings, took the dressings off, and seven days of healing had occurred. And don't we have a great God? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So that day, I was just, I was blown away, blown away by God and his answer. And I continued doing wound care, and Tendon started really making progress, and she just bubbled over with joy. And I started noticing that every time any of our employees had time off, they were sitting on the side of Tenon's bed chatting with her, and everybody just loved her, really, really loved her. And she just kept blossoming and blossoming. And the one really neat thing, too, is that every time anyone comes to the hospital in our country, they have to bring a family member with them. And the family member does all of their cooking, all of their laundry, if they need a bath, the family member usually does their bath for them. So the family is there a lot. And so we actually got to reach into her family's life as well. And um, within a week, Tenen was able to go back to the OR again, have her wound closed. And in another week or so, she was able to go home. She never needed her feet amputated. They healed. And um, it was just amazing, amazing, amazing to see how God worked in her life. Um, the next person I want to tell you about is a little boy. This is um, a man. This is actually the father of the, the boy that I want to tell you about. He was a witch doctor. He was into traditional medicines. He was, um, yeah, he was into just about everything you can imagine. And he lives in a, in a town and in, specifically in a neighborhood of a village that is, is known for being cursed. Every boy that's born in this neighborhood does not live to grow up. There's not one little boy that has lived to grow up. This man had four sons. Three of his sons were already di- had already died from, for one reason or another, and they were believed to have died under this curse. And Omar was his last son. Now, Omar developed a tumor, a massive tumor on his face that hung down almost to here. And he, it had gotten so big that he couldn't eat or drink anymore, except if he just poked it in at the top. And so he was becoming, he was getting very thin. And he, they, the dad had done everything he could. He had taken him to the doctors. He had tried every 
thing that a witch doctor will try. He tried all the traditional healing things that he could try, and nothing was working. And everybody had given up on this boy. And um, the family, well, let me just tell you, this tumor was nasty. I'm not going to go into detail, but it stunk, and there were always flies around. And this family had become outcasts. No one came to their yard. No one talked to them. If they left home, people would walk away. If they went to the market, people would scatter. They were living under a curse. And they couldn't go to other people's homes. It was the, the mom, the dad, everybody was under this. So one, one day, our team, our pastoral team, was mostly Malians, and a few, um, few of the international workers went to go and share the gospel. And usually we go on a campaign. It goes from Sunday to Sunday or something like that. It's about seven or eight days. And they go, and in the mornings, the pastors are just there for people to come and pray with, come and talk to. Do they, they just are there. And then in the evenings, we go and we share an evangelistic, I can't speak, film. And then someone shares a, a short message, and then they go home. And at, in the evenings, a lot of people come out, and they want to watch the, the, the films that we have. And this particular night, the Jesus film was shown. And this man said, I'm going to go. And so he went, and he went on the outskirts of the, the crowd, and he was watching this film. And as he was watching Jesus heal and Jesus performed miracles, he said, maybe this Jesus can heal my son. And so the next day, he went and he got his son, and he took him to the pastors, and he said, will you pray? And they prayed for this young boy, and they said, we think you need to take him to the hospital. You can go ahead to the next slide. And um, take him to the hospital, and, and we'll see what we can do. And so we began doing chemotherapy to try to shrink this tumor. And after a month of chemotherapy, there really wasn't any change. It's really hard to get biopsies, so we um, finally got one, and we sent it all the way to America to, with a visitor to to find out what results we could get. And we found out it wasn't a cancer. It was just a, a large tumor. And so um, there you can tell he's got cloth wrapped around his abdomen. We put in a feeding tube so that we could begin feeding him because he wasn't strong enough to have surgery. And so he spent a month with us just getting fed and growing and gaining weight. One of the things that we do at the hospital that's really exciting and it's one of my passions is we share Bible stories every day. And it's a, a new thing, a very old new thing in missions, um, where we share Bible stories. And I hope to get to share a little bit about that later this week. But um, every day we go and we share. And his mom, he, Omar and his mom attended on a regular basis. And both of them accepted the Lord as their Savior. And his mom said, Omar went from not talking to the first words out of his mouth every morning when he would wake up as Jesus. And he just couldn't stop talking about all the things that he was learning about the Lord. And it, it was super exciting. You can show the next slide. Is he had, his mom had just been given the Bible um, on this little MP3 player, and they listened to it nonstop. Everywhere they went, it was with them. Um, they just 
were absolutely growing in the Lord. And Omar's dad, um, he, he was just watching all of this unfold. About two days before he had surgery, I went down and I was talking to them about surgery, knowing that he was going to have a major surgery. They were going to remove two-thirds of his jaw. So his whole lower jawbone was going to be removed. He was going to have to have a trach because there was no structure anymore to help him breathe. That would make his airways collapse. And um, so it was going to be big. But um, anyway, I went down and I asked, how are you doing? And the dad said, you know, if this surgery works, I'm going to become a Christian too. And I walked away discouraged because I thought, you know what? That's not why we accept the Lord. And um, I went away with such a burden, and I just prayed and prayed and prayed that this man would see Christ and his need for Christ, and that it wouldn't be, if God does something, I'm going to accept him and I'm going to follow him. So I went home, and I, I really prayed about it that night. The next day, I went back, and I said, hey, how are you doing? Today's the day. Are you ready? How are things going? And the dad said, you know what? I couldn't wait. I needed to accept Jesus now. So he had accepted the Lord, and it was really exciting. So Omar had his surgery. He grew in the Lord, and they, they really responded. His sister accepted the Lord as well. You can go to the next slide. And he was just so full of joy. There's two pictures of him there. Um, and then since they have gone back to their village, he's now actually had surgery with a tight, put it, to put in a titanium jaw. He's doing great. He's back in school. Um, but since they have gone back to their village, they are like the central location for everybody to come and visit. <laughs> they are so popular that sometimes it's hard to get in their courtyard. And um, they have led six other people in their neighborhood to the Lord. And then this little boy, Dauda, um, had cancer and also heard about Omar. He's from the same village, and his family brought him in, and he was able to be treated and, and went home healed um, because of Omar's story. So I just think about these, well, more than two people now. It's, it's growing. But how they lived in a place where there was no hope. For Tenen, she would, as international workers, 200,000 people live in Kuchala, and everybody lives behind a 10-foot wall. We would never, ever have known that, that Tenen existed. Even, even the Malian pastors may not have been able to get in that courtyard. There's so many, so many, and she would have been there. And nobody would talk about her. Nobody would talk about the fact that she existed, but God. God placed his hand in there, and he pulled her out. And Omar, you know what? He was given up for dead. He was under the curse. Nothing is greater than a curse, right? We know that's not true. So God says, Prepare the way for the Lord, and all people will see his salvation. But the more exciting thing to me about that is that, you can go ahead, God is not calling us to do something for him. He's calling us to do something with him. As I was looking back at that passage, let's see if I got it. Nope. 
Um, As I was looking back at this passage, it says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. As I read that, that's one of those things that I learned in school way back that I don't really even remember, but it's an inferred you. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. He's calling us to get involved. Calling us to take part in what he's doing. As, as Christians, as believers in Christ, he calls us all to help the Great Commission come. To, to see his kingdom come. To go to Jerusalem, Samaria, the utter ends of the earth. He doesn't want us to just sit where we are and to hold what we have close. He wants us to use it. Um, and the thing is, all we have to do is, is say, God, how do you want to use me? You know what? There are so many of us that at work, in our neighborhoods, there's somebody right next to us that's marginalized, that feels like nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows the true me. Sometimes it's us ourselves that we feel like we're in a bubble and nobody really knows us. But God can reach in. God is able to move mountains. God is able to come in in places that we feel are totally impossible and say, you know what? I want to touch you. And he's calling us to be part of that. He's calling us to be involved. And you know what missions is about going? It's about praying. It's about giving. But it's so, so much more. If you are Christian, if you belong to the body of Christ, then you've been called in that great commission. You've been called to be aware what's around you. How can God use me in this moment? It is important that all of those other things happen, but it's even more important that each one of us asks daily, hey God, how can you use me? Because God says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. You know what? God's in the business of filling in valleys. Every mountain and hill made low, he's in, the, he's in that business too, of making the path straight. The crooked roads become straight. He's straightening those paths so that people can find a way to him. And he's making the rough ways smooth so that all people will see his salvation. So I encourage you, pray. Ask God, how is he speaking to you? How is he asking you to get involved in making his kingdom come, that all peoples will see his salvation. I spent the the better part of this week in New York City with the president of our denomination and 20 other young leaders, and he really drilled into us what God's put on his heart for our denomination, for our churches. He says we are to be a Christ-centered Acts 1-8 community. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you look at those locations, it's an ever-widening circle. We have Saratoga Springs, 
We have the capital region. We have New York. We have the United States. And then we have the ends of the earth. We're supposed to be fulfilling the great commission of Jesus Christ in all of these places at once. Some of the things Corey and others are trying to do here is create these opportunities for local outreach. We're trying to hit our city. We want you to get involved in that. That's the Great Commission. Uh, Also, we have people that have been called overseas to places like Mali, Africa. And God is also calling us to make a difference there as well. Uh, We have to all look at how we can do the Great Commission locally and globally. And one of the ways... We do that is by praying, praying for our missionaries, praying for our missions. Uh, one of the other ways we do it is by giving, supporting financially. And we have something called the Great Commission Fund uh, that is our denomination's way of supporting our missionaries. So on, over and above our normal giving, you'll see on your news sheet, there is a, a fund that people give to weekly, monthly, yearly, that goes towards a pool of money that supports our missionaries. So we are doing ministry. We are fulfilling the Great Commission at the ends of the earth. And our missionaries are supported through this fund. Great Commission Fund. Uh, And the other way is some of us are called to go. And as much as I love some of you, you know, I would be very happy if Jesus called you out of this church to go somewhere, whether it be a different state, a different country, for the gospel. So uh, as we're closing this morning, just be in prayer. How am I participating in the Great Commission locally, in my community, in New York State, the United States, and to the ends of the earth? How can I pray? more strategically and intercede how can I give more generously to see the Great Commission fulfilled and the other question, am I called to go and some of you have been missionaries already overseas, I'm looking at some people that I know have served as missionaries and some of you have been on our short term trips Uh, whether it's short term or long term, is, is the spirit calling you to go and that's something we want to get behind you with absolutely, so as we sing this song let's just consider these questions And let's just ask, and I'll ask for us right now, Jesus, we want to live out your great commission. We want to be a Christ-centered Acts 1-8 community who is is, uh, reaching people for Christ in our community, in our state, in our country, and to the ends of the earth all at the same time like you called us to. Help us to become ever more this vision that you've given us as a church, uh, to become the hands and feet of Jesus, to see your kingdom built here and abroad, uh, to know that we are doing all that we can give our lives for the gospel message. In Jesus' name.